0: The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations-China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orlands. I'm president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled today to have with us Evan Osnos, who was correspondent for The New Yorker from 2008 to 2013 in Beijing, and before that was Beijing bureau chief for the Chicago Tribune. He has just come out with a wonderful book called Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in the New China, which having just completed it, I can tell you it is a wonderful read. Welcome, and let me ask you, why did you choose that title?
1: You know, the concept of ambition itself is a multi-layered idea in China, and it means something ambiguous and complex to a lot of different people, which is exactly what China is these days and needs to be understood in those terms. So ambition, just to very briefly, was an idea that for a very long time was a pejorative. You really weren't supposed to be ambitious. The term in Chinese is ye which is literally wild heart. You've seen that change pretty dramatically, certainly over the course of the time that I've been living there, to the point that today it has a neutral and in some cases positive reputation, a positive connotation. And I think it really is a reflection of the way that people see themselves both inside China, and this is obvious to us around the world, China's ambitions as a national power. That's not in dispute. But from my perspective, the dynamic that is more interesting, I think harder to explain, harder to understand, is the ambitions within China.
0: I assume the book is not gonna be published on the mainland but will be translated in Hong Kong and Taiwan. Has it been? It is right now. Yeah, it, there's a publisher, the process of being translated yeah, there's or has it been translated?
1: No, there's a publisher in Taiwan that is doing it now. Uh the way it works is, as you know, Chinese publishers on the mainland asked to publish it. And uh actually they asked before I'd finished the manuscript and I said, I don't think this is a good idea. Let's let me finish the book and then I'll send you the manuscript. When I did, they said, I think for this to be acceptable in China, we'd have to cut probably about 25%. And they identified what it was that needed to be cut. They asked if what they could produce sm- a special... What were
0: discussion?
1: Some of it was what you would expect. Mm-hmm. It would be people who are politically sensitive. Other subjects included, for instance the origins of China's economic reforms, who was responsible for it. So really? for instance, if you identify Zhao Ziyang as a player in that process, which of course he was, mm-hmm. as Vogel and others have described it eloquently, they thought that was gonna be problematic. You know, the hard part about this process, as you know, is that it is a process of negotiation. You know, if I decided, look, I don't want to change the description of the origins of China's economic reforms, well then it would have become, well, I don't know, maybe that's not gonna work. In the end, it was not a hard decision. The book will be available to Chinese readers, any Chinese readers who want them for in Taiwan. And frankly, I hope that they'll get it over the Internet as well.
0: What if they'd only said one percent? Was this a question of principle, if they're willing to publish 100% and you get approval of the translation, or if it had been very minor changes, you would have said okay?
1: I'm not fond of absolutist positions. I don't think that's really a wise way to go. What I do think is clear is that it depends on the kind of book you're writing. I mean, if you're writing a book in which you're talking about politics and economics, and you're asked to cut material facts from that narrative... What you're doing is signaling to a Chinese reader that those facts don't matter, or worse, you're participating in something that's less than true. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have, frankly, greater respect for Chinese readers than that. I don't want to be a party to a book that I don't think is an honest rendering of the time that I'm describing.
0: Mm -hmm. There are many U.S. authors who have come out differently, but you understand, in other words, you don't. They don't say they're wrong. It's just a different... It's a different I mean, I'm,
1: I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I don't want to start a conversation. You know, one of the reasons why I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times on this subject right. was to put this on the table and mm-hmm. say, look, a lot of our friends, Steve, we all, you know, we all know each other. We know exactly how complicated it is in China. There are no fixed rules of the road. And I think there are times when we slide into habits of mind about how we look at the place that I'm not sure that we'd examined. In my case. I'd gone into this process thinking I probably will publish this book in China. We'll see what happens. I had no idea. You know, certainly all the publishers that approached me beforehand based on my work in the New Yorker, none of them said, "We don't think this is going to work." So it was really interesting to me to hear to see it laid out line by line.
0: It was interesting as I read through the book. The first third, I kind of felt, you know, this could be this could be published in China. Mm-hmm. Then as you went further on, you, you kind of it became more sensitive as the book went on, to where at the end I said there is no way that this could be published in China. But you had access to people who I would consider very sensitive, you know, mm-hmm. this way Weiwei huh? you, people. Why do this, does the Chinese government kind of allow that? They could shut it off. I mean, the one person you didn't have access to until he came to America was Cheng Guangzhou because but he other, was under house arrest. Yes, you're absolutely under, right. But others you had access. Why, why did they do that?
1: Well, I would qualify that observation a little bit by saying that, you know, you do have to go to some lengths to get to these folks if you're talking about somebody like Liu Xiaobo who was in and out of house arrest at various points. But, you know, it's not all that hard to get to them. That's the thing. I mean, to say that I had access to them, it's a little bit like I had access to pretty pretty much anybody in China who was not a member of the government. And when you want to get to a member of the government, that's when the roadblocks go up. And if you think about that, that creates, as a, as somebody who is working for a major American news organization, who has obviously, you know, there are people who are going to be reading this rendering of China. This is where I feel like that in a sense, you know, there is a part of the Chinese communication strategy, government communication strategy, which is not kept up with other parts of governance. It doesn't do them any favors. Because if you try to sit down and say, look, I want to have a conversation with somebody, let's have a basic conversation about economic policy or about political policy. Mm-hmm you know, this is in so many ways, I think, an opportunity that could have been more fully developed. I mean, in the end, you know, you can have off-the-record conversations, you can have dinners with with Chinese
0: officials, but
1: it doesn't contribute to the reporting in a way that I think it should, because this is an opportunity for them to be more upfront about the story that
0: they have to tell. So their communication strategy, you have this wonderful chapter on the ministry of of propaganda, you know, which really, I think, opens a lot of curtains. Even for a China scholar like myself, I learned a lot from reading some of that stuff, so I thought it was... It was terrific, but their communication strategy is flawed. I think it is. And, I, you know, if
1: I'm being honest and I say this with, you know, I have great affection for China. This is the reason why I lived there for eight years, why I, you know, have written a book that is a warts and all portrait of a place that I really feel immensely attached to. In so many ways, I look at it and I think China's done with the propaganda department. You know, this should be a piece of history. And so by putting it out there and saying and commenting on the oddity of, of its existence... I think it's a little bit like what I would do if I went to West Virginia and saw something there or if I went to Boston and saw something there, which is exactly what I now do for the
0: New Yorker. But what's happened is since you departed, that organization has become even stronger in the Chinese political body. You're right. That is exerting more control.
1: I think you're right. And I um, I don't think that should be a source of optimism for us because there's a lot of reasons to be, I think, encouraged by some of the early steps of reform that we're seeing on the economic side. On the political side, I think they're uh, at cross purposes. If you look at what's happening on the political side, I don't think it's positioning China to be the kind of player in the world that it needs to be and that it wants to be.
0: You've now been back in the U.S. for almost a year. Right. Has your perspective changed? What's being in the U.S. done to kind of your thinking about China?
1: I'll tell you one thing it has done is, you know, when I was in China and people would say, boy, the United States government is really dysfunctional. And I would say, well, okay, but frankly, I've seen a government up close that's having trouble too, and Chinese have a lot of troubles, and before you go saying that the American system is as screwed up as it is, I'll take you to Hunan, and we can talk about how things are going. And then I moved to Washington, and I started work (laughs) on the very day that the government shut down. And that's actually been a very healthy exercise to watch a different kind of system go through its own crisis of a certain kind and uh, there there's there will be a new yorker piece in there somewhere
0: i'm sure comparing the two systems
1: in some form or another you know you can't do a straight comparison i'm not sure how productive that would be but to comment on just to describe both of them with the same frame of reference the same lens that may turn out to be a useful well, exercise it certainly
0: is the argument in china that an authoritarian system on a country of you know almost 1.4 billion is the only way to manage it. The democracy is such a messy process that it would lead to you know, mass starvation, chaos, etc. That I've heard that argument hundreds and hundreds of times. And I
1: think that's an important fact that we've heard it hundreds of times, which is to say, it's a static argument. Right. And I think that's actually one of the points is worth engaging. Is China has transformed at such speed that I look at the at the political values that the party embraces at the moment and i wonder whether it's time for them to be refreshed in a way because if you look out at the population it's not the same population that it was even 15 years ago you know it's a country that is majority urban for the first time you've got a population that's never been more educated they're living 25 years longer than they were a generation ago that should have a have an impact on the kinds of political possibilities for the country I'm not calling for transformation overnight. In fact, I'm not calling for anything. And I I should add, you know, because I think it's worth having. Sometimes when we have a conversation in the U.S., we immediately revert to should China adopt democracy. You know, I don't think I've engaged that question seriously in 15 years because it's not really my project. Also, you know, I worked in Iraq right before I came to China. I saw the effects of an abrupt political transformation, and I have no illusions about how painful that can be. So my hope is that China can, in fact, adopt reforms that would prevent an explosion.
0: What's the best story you didn't have in the book, whether for length or whether you believe that it was too far out?
1: I have always wanted to do a story about the slogan, the idea of a slogan, a Chinese slogan. It's a powerful device and a very specific Chinese thing. And it was, oddly enough, you know, the, the idea of the Chinese dream, which has become, I think, a useful framework for us to talk about China today. Came out in the final months that I was there. At the time, I thought about engaging it, really going into it seriously. I started talking to Chinese communications professionals for all the reasons we've talked about today, and uh, that'll have to be a story for another day.
0: Or maybe it's going to be a story on Xin Xin Da Guan right? The new, I think the new big power exactly relationship and what it, it became a slogan without, you know, without a ton of uh, meaning.
1: Well, it's a, I mean, this is a key question. You know, sometimes slogans have always been a part of the U.S.-China relationship. Sometimes they're they're useful. Sometimes they're not.
0: What, are you going to go back to China? We miss you already. Oh, we're, we're, I mean go back not to just visit. I mean go back to start reporting Well, you're again. kind to set up. the depth of that reporting. I guess that's one of the great benefits of writing for New Yorkers. It is. the a daily newspaper, that yeah. you really can cover stories in depth. As I read the book, I mean, it was quite amazing stories, which I knew, yeah. but you added nuance, detail, and background which I wasn't aware of in probably you know a dozen of the chapters.
1: I should tell you I, I'm an enormous beneficiary of the form and possibility that The New Yorker provides. It's just a fact. When you can write about a country like China at 10,000 words, it allows you the luxury of complexity. And I've never been I've never lived in a place, I've never spent time in a place where that's as necessary as it is there. But you're not answering the question. I should say I was. Well, I was. Is there any
0: plan for you to return to China and start the? In in the
1: short term, the reason we came back is that it's time for my wife and I to be in the U.S. for a few years. But we just went back. I was there about six weeks ago. Plan is to go back fairly regularly. But I I need to. uh, I was gone for 11 years. I need to get reacquainted with the United States for a little while before moving back to China. But I have every plan to go back eventually. Have you
0: discovered that the expatriate view of China when you're living in China versus the view of Americans who are not living in China. It's like they're two different worlds. I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. There's almost no overlap anymore. I totally agree with that. to some degree, being in Washington, you see that up close. Yeah. That it's just, when they talk about China, you go, huh?
1: Well, part of the reason to, to write a book that is so firmly embedded in the tiny details of people's lives, I mean, you could could say these are the these are the, the sort of picayune details of people's lives. And it's precisely because I think that's what gets lost when we look at it from far away. You can see China from a million miles away, but you can't see these kinds of, the texture of life.
0: Evan Osnos, author of Age of Ambition, you absolutely must read it. It is a must read. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks,
1: Steve. I appreciate it.